get the essentials out of the way first. Uh, good morning, I'm Peter Guttridge. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome you to the Edinburgh Book Festival. I'm a journalist and author. I'm very delighted to have as our guest here today uh, Simon Montefiore, who you know as a multi-award winning um, <coughs> historical writer. Uh, his books, uh, Catherine the Great and Potemkin, Stalin, Young Stalin, all bestsellers, all remarkable books. But he's here to talk about his first novel, <coughs> Sashenka. Uh, and Not actually my first novel. My, that's a good start, isn't it? <laughs> the first of his novels I've read. <laughs> yeah, the first uh, anyone's read. Yeah. <laughs> and about other things, I've no doubt. He's going to uh, talk for a while in a minute. I'm going to be asking him some questions. You'll have ample chance to ask questions afterwards. And then he'll be signing copies of his other books, maybe his earlier novels, and this one in the signing tent. Please just welcome once again Simon Montefiore. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be, to be back here again. Well, you know, for those of us who, who write or read or follow um, matters in the East, we're living in exciting times. And um, it happens that I've spent, I spent a lot of my youth, really, in the very foothills that Russian tanks are now rolling through in, uh, in Ossetia and, and in Georgia and Abkhazia and so on. So we, we may have to talk about that a bit, especially since in the, in the novel, by total coincidence, in Sashenka, um, the, the, the young historian at the end who, who solves the, the mystery of, of Sashenka's fate um, is actually born in the North Caucasus in a village, um, probably in North Ossetia, um, exactly like the villages you've been seeing on the news in the last few days. And, um, and part of the, and, and, and as for Sashenka, um, part of her first part of her story actually takes place in Tbilisi, which again you've seen a lot in the news. And so, um, so I want to talk about that, but also I can't avoid it anyway. So, so I, hopefully we can, we can discuss matters of Putin and, and Saakashvili um, uh, later on in, in, in the talk. Um, perhaps I should say, it's a very strange thing for a historian to write a, write a novel. Um, it's probably um, slightly reckless. And it was something I couldn't resist. Because in my history books, which, which have always dealt with Russian power, and are really studies of how power works in the peculiar idiosyncratic uh, world of the Kremlin, which fascinates me. Um, I didn't really deal with the private life, the ordinary people. I dealt with the private lives of Stalin and Catherine the Great and Potemkin, the powerful, the very, very peak, the very, very um, peak of, uh, of superpower, if you like. But I didn't really deal with ordinary family life, and that's something I missed. And when I was researching those books, I spent a lot of time in the archives, reading letters, looking at photographs, and exploring, uh, exploring that world. And yet, I couldn't really put it into the book um, because, you know, these books. I, I was very concentrated on what I was doing. It was really Stalin, the very top people. And so, I had this material and I had this story in my mind, and it's a story that became Sashenka. And as I wrote it, uh, it became the characters became as real to me as as perhaps the real historical characters that I knew so well. I mean, when I say one knows Stalin well, for example, he's always described as a great mystery, an enigma, unknowable. But when you have looked at a thousand letters by him, a thousand documents, where he's, where he's often written in the margins um, his, his thoughts on, on, on things, and sometimes you can guess what he's going to say, and then you begin to, then you begin to experience that weird and um, rather terrifying 
um, feeling that you're beginning to think like Joseph Stalin, <laughs> which is not something I wish on anybody. Um, but Stalin and this period, I'm going to talk about Sashenko in a minute, remains so relevant today. Um, it used to be when I gave these talks a few years ago that I used to, when I started talking about Stalin, I used to say he was relevant because Saddam Hussein worshipped Stalin. And when I, when I went down to visit all Stalin's houses in Abkhazia, one of the breakaway territories that we're now reading about, um, I went round all the houses there. And I said to the, one of the old ladies who'd worked there in Stalin's time, I said, and by the way, you know, has anyone else, has Anthony Beaver or Robert Service, has anyone else been anywhere near these houses? <laughs> and they went, no, no, no. I said, you, you, you do make these sort of checks when you're do, writing these sort of books. <laughs> and then I said, uh, but she said, but there is one man who's been to every one of these houses and a couple you haven't even been to. And I said, who's that? Very worried. Was it Orlando Fiji's, for example? <laughs> no, she said, it's an Arab gentleman. She said, Saddam Hussein. So that was kind of fascinating. But, you know, but now the relevance of Stalin is much, much greater to us. In Russia itself, um, you know, President Putin has, has, has created a textbook that hails Stalin as the greatest uh, Russian, most successful Russian leader of the 20th century. And it's something which he's actually presented to Russian teachers in the Kremlin. So this is the official view now. The irony of it is that Stalin was a Georgian, as you, as you probably all know. He was born in Gori, the town which Russian tanks have rolled into this morning. Um, and, um, and so he wasn't Russian at all. The chances of a Georgian becoming leader of Russia are absolutely zilch. It's very unlikely to happen. It's a totally different language, different culture, different everything. It has an ancient literature of its own. The alphabet is, is not Slavic. It's not Slavonic. It's as different from Russian as Chinese is from English. So they're very different nationalities. So for Stalin to become leader was quite extraordinary. But that's, that's in a way, another story. But, it's, it, but the irony of it is that this Georgian cobbler's son from Gori um, has become, in the 21st century, a Russian czar, a great Russian ruler, and his Georgian background is now irrelevant. Um, so, and, Pre and Putin himself, Prime Minister Putin himself, is fascinated by Stalin for a couple of reasons. One reason um, is that his own grandfather um, worked for Stalin. It was, even, it was more fascinating that his grandfather was a, was a chef, a cook, and he cooked first of all for Rasputin, then for Lenin, and then for Stalin. <laughs> He didn't make it to Khrushchev's kitchen, but, um, but I think that, you know, forget Jamie Oliver. Um, you, know, he, you know, this was quite some cook. So, so he grew up with that in his household. And the other thing that people who've told me, who know Putin well and who work with Putin, told me that he's fascinated with Stalin. And when he's um, half of Stalin's library, Stalin was very literate. He had a huge library. And by the way, you know, we know he read it. He wasn't one of these leaders who just have a wonderful library and we, probably they never read anything. Um, he, every book he read is, 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 note, is, is underlined, the margin, he writes in the margin. So it's kind of, you know, you, you know that he's read it. And he was, you know, he really spent most of his time reading, not sitting in an office, but reading at home, lying on his sofa, um, underlining things. And so half this library is in the archives, where I used it for my history books, but half of it is in, is in the president, now the president's office. But Putin, when he was president until a couple of months ago, if he was bored in the office, which he was quite often apparently, he used to... So say to his guest, come up to this bookcase, close your eyes and run your finger along the books and choose one. And they'd open it and it would be one of Stalin's books. And they'd look and see uh, what, was, you know, what Stalin had written and, and look at it and, and, and talk about it. So, so Stalin is actually more relevant today um, you know, for so many reasons than he's ever been. So that period is very fascinating. 
But when I set out to write a novel out of all this period, um, I wanted to do something very different. I mean, in this, in this book, Sashenka, Stalin and Rasputin and other people appear. The history is all cracked. But I actually don't regard it as a historical novel, even though it's set in history. It's really about a family, a woman, her children, her mother, her, you know, her parents-in-law. It's really about an, it's an intimate family story about children, of the sort of novel that I, I love to read myself. Um, what one, you know, in the tradition of, though of course not even, not, not even daring to approach, those great realist novelists like you know, Isaac Bashevis Singer, Naguib Mahfuz in his Cairo trilogy, um, the Foresight Saga, That's, those are my sort of heroes when I'm writing this book. Um, and though, and though I, I place myself very, very far below those, of course, um, I loved writing about a family, about children, um, about love, about passion, um, and also about a family changing. Because yes, they're an ordinary family, but they're in extraordinary times, ever-changing times. And the book has three parts. It starts in Tsarist Russia. Sashenka's father is what you'd now call an oligarch. He's a Tsarist oligarch, a Jewish um, merchant prince living in St. Petersburg um, in the last days of the First World War, just before the revolution. She, um, she goes to the, to, the, to the poshest boarding school in Petersburg, the Smolny Institute, founded by Catherine the Great. And as the book opens, it's snowing. Her English nanny waits for her outside. And she comes out and is arrested by the Tsar's secret police for being a Bolshevik. And that's the beginning of the story. So the first part of it um, is very much set in the Tsar's time when um, uh, decadent times, times when people did a lot of um, reading of tarot cards, mysticism was very current in these elite circles. Um, cocaine was very popular um, as a headache treatment. And, um, and, and so that's where it starts. Then we jump 20 years later to um, Stalin's period. But Sashenka is now married, as a lot of these Jewish, well-off, well-born um, women were. She actually married one of the Bolshevik, a worker, who becomes a top Stalinist official. And she edits a magazine that is the Stalinist equivalent of Vogue magazine, which, by the way, existed and is totally based on reality. It tells you how to make a Stalinist cake, for example. <laughs> And I've looked at these magazines, and they are hysterically funny, but also, um, and, I, and I, so all the details that are in here, every detail that is in here about this magazine and what kind of articles she's commissioning are accurate. Um, but she survived the Great Terror of 37. It's now 1939. She's been so disciplined all her life. She's in her 40s. She's got two adorable children. And then she takes this dreadful risk, which doesn't seem like a risk to her. She embarks on a secret love affair with a writer that has devastating consequences. But even as she falls through the, through the, um, uh, off the precipice, through the air, into nothingness, even as she knows her whole life is, um, is passing before, she knows that it's over, she, her, her dacha in the country, where Stalin comes for dinner, she knows that she's never going to see it again. She knows that um, she may never see her children again, she may never see her husband again. But even as this happens, she doesn't know why. She can't imagine why she, who's devoted to Stalin and the revolution, um, ha has been arrested. And so in part three, um, we find out what really happened. And a young historian, a girl, born in the North Caucasus in a village um, just north of Ossetia, near Vladikavkaz, where President Putin, Prime Minister Putin flew in just the other day. You probably saw him arriving in his white leather jacket um, at the airport looking very macho. Um, or, 
or as a gay friend of mine called it, pimptastic. Um, um, he, um, uh, she's, she's born there, and she gets the job from a powerful man in Moscow. This is, this is now in the 1990s, by the way, the age of the oligarchs again. Um, and she gets a job to go and investigate this. She's a young historian. She's been at Moscow University. And she gets the job to investigate the story of this woman who she's never heard of, Sashenka. And she goes into the archive. She goes into Stalin's archive. She goes underground into the deep safes um, in nuclear bunkers where um, Stalin's papers are kept to this day. And she goes under there, and she finds out what happens. And as she finds out, she gets more and more involved. And she realizes that in Russia, especially in, the, in connections at the top with the Kremlin and so on, there are no coincidences, and everything is connected. And this is pretty accurate, in a sense. I mean, many parts of the story are based on truth. And really, I've put together a lot of true stories and made them into a story. Um, and as I said, as I did it, the characters actually became realer than the historical characters, which is bizarre. But to give you an idea, um, the girl in the Caucasus, the young historian in the 1990s, in our time, she's commissioned to do this by an oligarch, a very wealthy billionaire, oil billionaire. And to give you an idea of how this is sort of based, how I got ideas for this book, when I was writing my um, Stalin book, I, um, I just published my book on Catherine the Great and Potemkin, which was very well received in Russia, because it was rehabilitating two um, Russian statesmen, if you like, one of whom was known as a nymphomaniac, and the other one as a pimp and builder of false villages. So I showed that neither of these were remotely true. And so my book became very popular in Russia. And I'll if I have time, I'll talk about how I benefited from that. But um, so a lot of people had read it. And when I was sitting in the coffee bean, which was the only place you could get a nice cup of coffee in Moscow in the early night, in the, um, about, you know, even about five years ago or 10 years ago, I was sitting there and I got a phone call on my mobile. And um, the man identified himself as one of the sort of two or three most powerful and wealthy Russian oligarchs, to my amazement, who I, you know, and I, I'd heard, by the way, that he'd read my book, but I didn't, you know, I, you know but it, just, it was just an extraordinary call, totally out of the blue. And I got this call, and I said, um, hello, what can I do for you? And he said, well, I've just read your book. I want to discuss it with you. And he said, um, you know, wh when can you discuss it? And I said, well, I'm, you know, sitting, having, tripping my coffee, reading my um, Herald Tribune. So I said, well, I'm frankly busy. I'm, I'm in the archives working day and night. I haven't got time. He said, um, well, I was thinking about meeting now. And I said, uh, well, you know, like I say, he said, no, no, no. He said, just come, get up and come to the window. <laughs> so, so I went to the window, and, um, and outside was this convoy of, of um, very, very Russian sight, a huge black armored Mercedes with two black Discovery Land Rover Jeeps behind. Um, you know, with bodyguards and stuff leaning on them, sort of leaning on them in a rather sort of um, pimptastic way. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and so and, and he just said, well, you, could you come now? And I went like, you know, so I went. <laughs> um, so that gave me the idea, this is just to give you an example of the idea of how the girl was commissioned by an oligarch to look into her family. Because his family came, this oligarch, who was of course of Jewish descent, like many of them are, his family came from a similar, he, he, anyway, he was, he, there were various um, connections with the Potemkin story that, that interested him. Um, so that's, that's how this book was put together. But I, I thought I'd just, start, you know, just carry on by saying that really um, all my life I feel I've been preparing to write this book rather than any of the other books. Um, when, I was, when I was young, I was brought up with stories of my own family that came. There was a Jewish family, my mother's family, not the Montefiores, 
My mother's family came from Lithuania and Poland and the Russian Empire, and they all escaped at various times. And the last to escape um, came um, from Lithuania. They were called Litvaks. And they came from Lithuania in the, literally the turn of the last century. And they, well, they bought a ticket on, the, um, on a big liner to, um, to, get the, to, get a, to, to get a ride to New York. So they paid for their ticket and they got on. And when they, when they, um, they arrived rather sooner than they expected, and um, they were very confused, there was no Statue of Liberty. So they said to the um, people, the captain of the ship, um, he said, where's the Statue of Liberty? Where's New York? He said, you didn't buy, you didn't buy tickets to New York. You bought tickets to New Cork. <laughs> and so they got off in Ireland. And this was a regular people smuggling trick, by the way, which, you know, um, we, we, that's what we'd call it nowadays, because they'd taken all the money of these people. And so they settled in Limerick, of all places, instead of, instead of um, Brooklyn, they settled in Limerick. And they were, there, there was just, there were, the Limerick people had never seen Jewish people before, yet alone Russian ones. So they all settled in one street, which, was, of course, was known as Little Jerusalem. And they became very hated soon by the Irish, um, to whom they sold pots and pans. And so in 1904, there was actually the last pogrom to take place on British soil. And uh, this, they had all their, a sort of furious um, uh, priest gave a sermon about the Jews, how the Jews had killed Christ. And the people ran out and just smashed all the windows and beat them up. So my family then moved to, um, then moved to Manchester and then to Newcastle and then to Nottingham and then um, to London. We made it to London at last, to a big metropolis, finally. And so, um, so that's how, and I'd been brought up on these stories, and I'd read all I could about Russia, and I'd read all the literature. I love, you know, I love Russian literature. And the great fascinating thing about Russia is that you can write a family story like this Sashenka, I hope, is, but it's also, you know, it's dramatic. The, the issues are, no, are not um, the middle-class English issues that we read about in English novels. The, it's, it's about life and death. Um, family life is about life and death in Russia. People die of gossip in Stalinist Russia. And so, and so that makes the stakes incredibly high. And it makes, of course, everything much more, much more moving, especially since people never think it's going to be them who are destroyed, especially at the top of the Bolshevik party. So I read all many years. After university, I actually became an investment banker, at which I was um, appallingly ill-suited. Um, privatizations all over Europe are still falling apart to this day because of my <laughs> blunders. Um, uh, but, um, but in 1991, the Soviet unions fell apart. And I bought a bed and I left banking. I bought a bed and breakfast ticket. And when they said to me, um, where do you want to go? Do you want to go to Moscow and Petersburg? I said, no, no, no. I want to go to um, Yerevan, Peter, uh, Yerevan, Tbilisi, Sukhumi, um, you know, Samarkand, all these places. And they said, oh, we've never had anyone go there before, but we'll, we'll arrange it. So off I went on this trip. And of course, no sooner had I arrived in Georgia than civil war broke out. In fact, everywhere I arrived, no sooner had I arrived than <laughs> civil war broke out. And, um, and that really was the beginning of my love affair, both with Russia and with Georgia. And these two countries, the fact that they're now in this terrible state that Georgia's been completely ravaged, is deeply heartbreaking to me. And, um, and I must say, I, I, just, I just can't believe it's happening. But we'll come to that in a minute. But, um, when I arrived in Georgia, I stayed with the Georgian family, and almost instantly, as I say, the president, who was called Zviad Gamsikurdia, who was a Shakespearean scholar who spoke perfect English. In fact, all he spoke was Shakespearean English, <laughs> which is one of his problems. Um, he, it was he who started this Ossetian, and really the start of the Ossetian problem, which you have now.
because he said Georgia was for Georgians. Now, Stalin had specially drawn Georgia in such a way that all these republics, he, Lenin and Stalin did not want any of these republics to ever leave the Soviet Union. Um, they were just inheriting the Russian Empire. So when they designed the Soviet Union, it was not designed, really, to, um, to fall apart and these countries to become independent. It was designed for the opposite, so they could never leave. And that was all built into the, um, into the discussions between Lenin and Stalin, the two men who designed the Soviet Union. And so, so when Gamsa Kurdia in 1991, when, when all the 15 republics around the edge of the Soviet Union became independent, the big ones you know, that we've heard of, Ukraine, Georgia, Estonia, um, uh, some of them had these inbuilt republics, these kind of um, little entities which were especially there to sort of cause trouble. And my, by God, has it worked, as we're seeing this week. Um, so anyway, I went to see, well, what happened was the family I was staying with in Georgia, they, it turned out that, um, that they were being horribly uh, misused because I was paying $61 a night for this. But it turned out they were receiving 50 cents for their, um, for the, per night. And there was a man, there was a very corrupt, rather sort of hugely fat man in a three-piece suit who was the sort of local fixer, and he was getting about 50 of these dollars. So when he, um, it, was a, it was a great moment when I said, I want to meet the president. And they took me to the president. No one else was there. There were no journalists. They were all in Moscow because such great events were happening. I was taken to see the president. When we walked up to the presidential palace, which you've seen on the news lately in Tbilisi, um, these kind of young men were smoking cigarettes with machine guns, came out and looked him up and talked to us. And they talked in Georgian. And then, um, to my horror, they grabbed this rather rotund man and just tossed him down the steps. And he rolled like a ball to the bottom, arrived unharmed. Um, there, bouncing like rubber almost. And then they looked at me and they said, you come with me. So that was the beginning of my relationship with George. I went in, I met the president. He was besieged in his palace. A civil war had broken out. And I had, a, I, I, I sort of, all my life I felt I'd longed to sort of live this sort of life that I was living um, in, in Tbilisi. And, um, and all sorts of funny things happened. But it was, but basically it was an unfolding tragedy as well. Um, you know, it was getting more serious. Tanks came into the streets. And I remember my parents were very worried. They knew I was in Georgia, and they hadn't heard from me. And all the phone lines were down. But the only phone that worked was on the president's desk. He had the only, this is 1991, he had the only um, satellite phone, a newfangled device. So I said to him, like, um, any chance, Mr. President, I can use your phone to phone my mum? <laughs> and, um, and so the president um, said, yeah, I'm just going to address my followers from, in a rally outside, rather like um, Saakashvili did yesterday. So um, I went, um, when he went out to the balcony and started shouting at his, at his um, followers, I phoned my mum. I said, hi, mum, it's me. I'm, and she said, where are you? Where are you? There's a civil war in Georgia. I said, I know. I'm right at the center of it. I'm, and, um, and then she said, then I, you know, he was shouting at the back. So, going, whoa, whoa, whoa. so I, she said, what the hell is that noise in the background? She said, it sounds like Hitler. I said, well, now you mention it. It's the, um, it's the local equivalent. Anyway, Gamsa Kurdia was, was then overthrown. And... Um, but when I was there on that time, by the way, I was taken up. He had, he had unleashed this disastrous war in Ossetia. The Ossetians are another ancient people that, that had cooperated much more closely with the Russians to the north. And therefore, the Georgians despised them. But their republic was built into, the Georgian, into Georgia. So they had to live with them. And they really should have lived with them. And, but this man had, had unleashed this dreadful war. And I was taken up. And the warlord of the Georgians at this time was called Vajja Adamir who was a rough guy, who was actually a dentist turned warlord. And um, I wouldn't have liked him to work on my mouth. Um, he took me up there and to this war. And it was extraordinary. I mean, it's 
Georgia is the most beautiful country in the world. The food is beautiful. The women are beautiful. The countryside is just astonishing. The towns are these beautiful towns with, with villas, with, with um, balconies and, um, and pillars and vines climbing up them. It's just romantic, gothic, um, gothic, beautiful town. Um, and, and I've described it in places in, in Sashenka. But um, when we went up, up this plane, it was, it, was, it, was, it was war-torn. You saw bodies. It was terrifying. It was exciting. Um, they were using, it was before the time when they had all this modern weaponry, so they armoured old-fashioned tractors by sort of taping armour to the side. So, that was, so it was a sort of tragic comic thing. And I remember um, when we arrived in one village, there had been a big shoot and various boys had been killed there. And I remember being sat, um, sat at this table on this amazing plateau. I could see for miles around, it was absolutely beautiful. They all leant their guns against the tree and we sat down. It was this amazing Georgian supra feast. And we ate... And after a while, I said, and where, you know, have the boys been buried? You know, has the, you know, has, and, they said, and, he, and he said, the, the, you know, the boy, he said, he hasn't been buried. I said, well, so where is he then? He said, he's under your feet. And I remember I looked under the table, and there was this boy, waxen-faced boy, um, peppered with bullets, um, lying, on a, lying on flowers under the table. That was the, that's the tradition there. So I imagine this week there'll be some, there'll be some of those funerals taking place as we speak out there in that very same ancient way. So this is how I came to, to know this, this part of the world. And later on, I learned not to be such a fool. I went to Chechnya in 1994. Um, and there, um, and, in, and also in 93, 94, when things got really nasty down there with Russian interference, I began to learn that I was probably better suited to writing books than to being a war correspondent. Um, in 93, in, in the Karabakh War, another one of these wars, I was captured by... Um, by some sort of heroin-addicted deserters from the Azeri army who very nearly, uh, very nearly killed me, who kidnapped me and, uh, and beat up my guard and all this kind of stuff. And I was lucky to escape alive. And after that, I began to think that perhaps I, was, I should do something else and sit in the library. And when I, when I was in, in Georgia, I flew down from um, London to Grozny just as the war was about to start. And when I flew down there, um, I sat next to a, a Georgian, a Chechen... Um, a police detective whose job was to catch murderers. And in broken English, I spoke very little Russian by th at that point, he told, me that, he told me that he'd never caught a murderer in his entire 30-year career. <laughs> told me this quite proudly. Um, he spoke because of the blood feuds. He said, we always know who's done it, but we've never caught one, ever. So that, was, that wasn't an encouraging start. But he did also told me that he knew a brilliant interpreter who could work for me while I was, uh, you know, while, um, I was in Chechnya. And that this interpreter... Um, was spoke perfect English and could talk to, and could talk with me to the president to anybody. Well, the next morning I opened my hotel room. Hotel was under complete bomb site, terrifying bomb site, by the way. But that's another story. I opened my there was a knock on my door. And I thought, oh good, my interpreter's come. I looked out, there was no one there. I looked down, there was a seven-year-old boy standing there. I said, who are you? He said, I'm your interpreter. He said. <laughs> So, obviously, wherever I turned up with this seven-year-old boy in tow, people looked at me pretty oddly. And I had to explain that I'd just met him, and then he was my interpreter. And everyone was like, ah, oh, yeah, your interpreter. That hell he is. So that was horribly embarrassing. But when I, on that day, the vice president of Chechnya, um, uh, who has since been murdered by, very recently, was actually assassinated in Qatar. You may have read about it. Um, he was assassinated in Qatar by, by Russian agents just about two years ago. But at this point... Um, he, he was the vice president. His whole convoy of ministers was blown up. All of them were killed. He survived. So I went to see him with my interpreter in, t in tow. And, um, 
And I remember that you know, there was a great sense of sort of excitement. Russian planes were coming over, tanks were moving. It was a sort of, we knew the war was about to start. But there's always, a, in the Caucasus, there's always a tragic comic touch. And I remember, I remember all these Chechen gunmen had, um, they'd obviously bought their, um, their, their sort of Holt gun holsters from a, a shop that also sold um, equipment to village people, the pop group. Because they all had spangly um, gun holsters. It was a disco age gun holster, but with real guns in them. So I remember that sort of, I remember that noticing that and thinking, like, my God, this is a strange, very strange place indeed. Um, and they, um, so I remember they were all there, and I remember I said to them, in the way you do speak to these, rather absurdly, one speaks to these foreign potentates in a very elaborate way. I remember saying to them, um, Your Excellency, I must say that though many of your brave um, colleagues have been killed today. You alone have survived. And then the little boy translated. And the next thing I knew, everyone drew their guns, and they were shouting, and one of them led off his gun, and another one, they, and I realized in the back of my mind, wouldn't it be funny if he translated it the wrong way around? <laughs> Which, of course, is what had happened. So, <laughs> so after that, I decided to write history books. <laughs> and, and, also to, and also to learn Russian, which I never... I, I learned Russian, and I, I couldn't have written these books without learning Russian. But I never learned it as perfectly as I'd love to have learned it. And, you know, it's a very, very difficult language. But at least I could work in the archives and, and look at documents. But um, uh, when I started working archives, I learned the Russian archives, which the third part of Sashenka is really about how the archives, um, how, the archives are, how you work in the Russian archives. It's all based on true stories. And you'll see it's, it's another mysterious world, like everything in Russia. I mean, as soon as I arrived, I realized in Russian archives, in England, the archivists want to help you find stuff. But in Russia, they want to stop you finding stuff. <laughs> and they'll do anything to stop you because they think they own the archives. Because in Russia, the archivists are dynasties, underground dynasties. I mean, literally underground. They're all intermarried, and they've all worked in there for many generations. And they're determined that no one should find anything in there at all. So I remember... When I remember, for example, and also there, a lot of them are very dilapidated. I mean, the first one I worked on with these Catherine the Great Potemkin um, uh, archives, I remember going up the steps with a man, and um, as we went up the steps in this wooden, it's a very old 18th century palace, but, you know, I was watching his feet, and then to my horror, he just disappeared. And I looked down, and there was a hole, a wooden, a huge step missing, and this man had just fallen down into the latrines underneath. And I can tell you that Russian archival latrines are not a pretty sight. Um, so... Also, you know, the, the, the women who worked in the archives were very hostile to me. And I remember that they, um, I remember sitting and one of them, one of them was a sort of cat, cat enthusiast. And she hated me because she was writing about Potemkin. She still hasn't published what she was going to write, by the way. This was now more than 10 years ago. But she was determined I wouldn't find it. And I remember sitting and there's a gallery in the archive. Um, and you sit there and you look at the papers. And I remember the horror of sort of sitting there. And then suddenly there was this kind of squealing sound. And a kitten landed in my hair. And scratch me, and um, and I looked up, and she 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 was like this. Sorry, <laughs> you're like this. So our Russian archives are a, very, a mystery, all all of their own. And I began to work in them. But when I started to work in the Stalin archives, it was then that I began to find the material that I knew I wanted to write about this. I remember finding letters um, in Stalin's own papers, in which people begged for the lives of their sister or their daughter. Oftentimes they said. You know, can we, we, I'll, shoot my, I'll shoot my brother myself, but I'll spare my son, and this sort of thing. And you'd read these letters, and oftentimes, you, know, you, they, you knew Stalin had read them, because at the top he writes, to my archive. So he did look at these things, but he just filed them. And of course, there are millions of letters that he didn't keep. And these archives were a special, special world, which fascinated me. And 
as, one, as a character says in the, in the book, you know, in Russia, the paper, you, know, you smell the blood on the paper. Because these archives, often they look dry. If you saw them, you wouldn't understand what they were. But they have the most terrible stories to tell, and the most terrible fates are decided by them, often by marginalia, little, um, little, you know, little things written. And yet, in these archives, there are also wonderful things. There are funny things. I remember finding in Stalin's archive, for example, the archive of Stalin's daughter, Svetlana, who was then a little seven-year-old you know, girl. And her game, believe it or not, was to pretend to be dictator of Russia. And her father's game was to pretend that she was dictator of Russia. So what you have in these archives are actually letters like, written like this from Svetlana Stalina, first secretary, general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, to her slaves, um, J. Stalin, V. Molotov, L. Beria. <laughs> I hereby order um, that as of today, by Central Committee um, decision, um, that all homework should be abolished in the Soviet Union this year. Like this. And then amazingly, um, they would pass it around the Politburo table. And so these, these letters are all signed by Stalin and Molotov and so on. And then he used to stick them up, she used to stick them up on the, in their dining room and show people. So, so there's sort of things which have some humor and some humanity in them. Um, there are also things where Stalin would sign his children's homework every night, you know, which, is sort of, which, which is strangely human, which you couldn't imagine. But equally are these tragedies. And I mean, one, 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 these letters really directly inspired Sashenka. Because many times, Stalin, because his own marriage had been such a disaster, he was very suspicious of the sex lives, the love lives, and the happy marriages of everyone around him. And that's really what, what this book is about, how, that, how a series of completely um, uh, random events could lead to tragedy. When I was looking at these, these documents, you found photographs quite often. And one of these photographs particularly um, fascinated me and inspired me. And this photograph was of a woman um, in her late 20s or early 30s, very beautiful, of Jewish descent, um, with, with, some chil with, with children, married, a worker in some minor communist office. And this was the photograph that is taken of all prisoners in the Soviet Union at that time. When you were arrested, you were woken up in the middle of the night. You were taken um, down. Um, your, your flat was sealed. Um, your, your study was sealed. Many things were taken away with you. You were suddenly taken out in the night. Your neighbors didn't know what had happened. Your children didn't know where you were going. They had to find their own um, way. They, hopefully, they were taken in by family. And you were taken down, and you rode in a black Mariah, a black crow, it's called in Russian, van. And these vans often said, um, buy eggs, milk, and vegetables on the side so that people didn't realize that they were taking endless prisoners. And you would be taken to Lubyanka, Lefortova, one of these dreadful prisons. And there you would go through the system. And the, you know, the usual things that happen in, in a prison, your belt's taken away so you can't commit suicide, your shoelaces, you're searched, you're in, searched internally rather brutishly. Um, and then um, you'll queue up, you sign in, you give all your, um, your, your, your possessions. And then you have this photograph. And you know, it's, it's the 30s, so it's one of those big flash cameras. You could imagine what they were like with a big... Um, flat, you know, sort of white, almost white, electric white flash. And then you'll, you look into that camera. And as I looked at this picture of this woman, I imagined um, what was going through her. And in her eyes, I felt I could see that she was both, she was exhausted, she was worried, she was afraid, because she knew she'd lost everything. She came from the privileged class, and she just could see that she'd just fallen off the edge of the world, and that she'd, you know, she may never see her family again. And why? She would never really know. 
Um, and she was about to find out an, another world. And, she's, and as she sat there, but at the same time, she must have occurred to her that this could be the last photograph ever taken of her. And that her, perhaps her children or her grandchildren or her, or her husband would one day find this photograph in some archive somewhere. And that this, arc, this picture would be the last record of her. And so there's a feeling of her trying to rustle up some hope, some strength, some resolve, a sort of um, jauntiness, just looking out as if to say, I'm falling off the edge of the world. I've gone, but I'm still who I am. And this moved me a lot. And I thought to myself, I want to write a novel about a woman like this. And that's, that's what this story is. And that's what inspired it. Um, so I think that we should, we should almost stop there and perhaps talk about this. There are just a couple of things that perhaps I could just finish up by saying before, before we talk. And th that is that, um, as I said, what's happening today you know, in, in the, in the, you know, the ex-Soviet Union, I almost, almost said the Soviet Union then, um, is, you know, is very relevant to that time. As I said, history is being redrawn there, history is being reformed. And I think in, you know, I think in some years, in a few years' time, you know, Stalin the Great will be celebrated with Catherine the Great and Peter the Great as a great Russian czar. Um, and so it's relevant. In my own work, um, I've experienced the, the ups and downs with these books um, of Russian politics in an interesting way. I mean, for example, when I, as I said, when I wrote Catherine the Great and Potemkin, I mean, no one cared that I was writing the book. But when I published it, um, it was quite celebrated in Russia. Putin's own publisher, who was a minister in his government, published it and, and bought it and so on. And it was read by many of the leadership. That was how um, I got the access to the Stalin documents that allowed me to write Stalin the Court of the Red Tsar. Because, um, because they said, this guy's this guy good. Let him have the green light. And that's how it works in Russia. Everything is from an order at the very top of what they call the vertical, the, the, the sort of the, um, the greasy pole, if you like, as Disraeli called it. And, um, and so I got this green light, and I felt the wonderful feeling of the Kremlin's warm favor shining down on me um, like, a, like a wonderful orange sun. Everything, every door opened to me. Everyone I wanted to see, I saw. Every, in the archive, I had my own, um, I had my own uh, special office, and I, I could see as many. You know, normal people could only see three documents a day, but I could see as many as, this, as the woman could carry in and give to me. And so that's how it enabled me to write this book. But by the time I published the book, um, I was out of favor in a big way. Because when I, when I published Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar, it showed Stalin ruling as a sort of gangster boss. Um, and it showed how power really worked in the Soviet Union. And it wasn't a pretty sight. And by that point, Putin had moved from saying he was inspired by Catherine the Great, which he did in his early period, um, to, to saying that he was... Um, he was inspired by, you know, Peter the Great and this sort of thing. So the world had changed. I was out of favor. So my friendly publisher, who's in, in Putin's government, didn't buy that book. And what else bought it? And I, when I went to the archive to start to write Young Stalin, um, I went to see the woman who'd helped me. I said, um, can I have my room again and everything? Nice to see you. She said, uh, what room? <laughs> and I realized I was out of favor. And the archives in Russia work in a very strange way because they started to sort of, things started to happen there, so you couldn't get things out. Very Russian, typical Russian story is that um, one day I went there and I said, I want to work. Now I was very humble. I was just working in the normal reading room with three documents a day. 
Everything took months. It was impossible. No one remembered me. Uh, it was very pitiful. And I felt the, the, the cold wind of the tundra blurring across, across Siberia into my little archive seat. And, um, and I, I remember one time I turned on, they said, it's closed. And I said, why? And they said, well, what happened was last night, two Russian soldiers who guard the archive got drunk, so drunk that they mucked about with the lift shaft. And they fell down the lift and were killed. Therefore, the lift's blocked, and we can't get any documents up, and I don't think it's ever going to be mended. So this is one of those kind of stories where you kind of think, very Russian story. Is it a conspiracy? Has President Putin made up this story so none of us can use the archive? Or did these soldiers really get drunk and fall down the lift shaft, and it really is blocked and no one will mend it? So this is the great question. Everything one writes in Russia, and in Sashenka, this, the book is in a way um, predicated right on this thing. Is, is, is it, was it a conspiracy, or was it just an accident? And everything in Russia, by the way, is just about a mixture of these two things. So, and the archives were closed. Then I went down to um, Georgia, where they'd loved the book on Stalin. And the, the new government, I've known all the presidents of Georgia since independence. And I've had a fascinating time with them. So, uh, when I went down there, the government allowed me to open the archives, which had been closed, which were really in a state of complete closure, in order to write young Stalin. Now, by a strange irony, um, this is probably the only thing in which um, President Saakashvili and President, President Putin had in common. But by a strange irony, um, um, young Stalin appealed to the Kremlin again because it showed Stalin as a young man, as an exceptional young man. And this now appealed to the Kremlin's view of Stalin. So again, my, my, my friendly minister in Putin's government rang me up and said, yeah, we'd like to publish this book. It's wonderful. So anyway... There we have it again. That's, those, these are the, the stings and arrows, the rises and fall, the cold wind and the hot sun of Kremlin favor. Now, even today, um, you'll have seen that someone wrote in The Guardian, I think, today, that though they're, bomb they're bombing the central square in Gori last night. And he said that, strangely and supernaturally, he said, though the whole town is shattered, Stalin's statue, which stands in the center of Gori, is untouched. And Stalin, in a way, looks over all of this, the ultimate... Um, the, you know, the romantic poet, the Georgian romantic poet and nationalist who became the ultimate Russian czar. Um, and so he's, he's present. One of the strange things about writing th these sort of books is that um, people think they know about bits of Russian history or bits of Stalin or bits of what's happening there today. But the whole picture is very complex and, and layered and hard to, to understand. And even for people who spent years then seeing things with their own eyes, it's hard to grasp. And I realized that, that some, most people um, in the West regard Stalin as a great mass murderer. In Russia, he's regarded as a great czar and war leader. And for many people, he's just this statue, which is this supernaturally unharmed statue in the middle of Gori. When I was researching this, one of the things I did, just to finish up, is I bought a giant oil painting of Stalin in the, in the, in the marketplace in, um, in, in Tbilisi. And it's a wonderful oil painting. It's actually one of the best investments I ever made. I haven't made many, but it's one of them. It was like, I, bought, I paid about two or $300 for it. It's oil it turned out to be an original of a famous oil painting. Stalin stands there looking out over the, over the Ukrainian steppes. Behind him, um, rows of phalanxes of um, combine harvesters thresh the Ukrainian, golden Ukrainian core. And he's standing at the front in his marshal's uniform, just looking out, unmistakable breast um, bulging with muscles and, and, and um, medals and shoulder boards gleaming. 
and he, there he stands. So I brought this back. I had it, um, I had it framed in, uh, in, in, in the country where my parents live. And the framer, the local framer, brought it round. And he carried it in. It's, like I said, it's about that big. He carried it in. And uh, he said, um, as he carried it in to get to, get to, my, to give my dad, he said, he said, it's a really lovely portrait. He said, and he carried it in and he came out. And as he came out, he said, I gave it to your dad, he said. And um, he said, I can see the family resemblance. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and so I realized that in, in a way, these, you know, these, the, my, my researches would be useful to him, um, for example. But just to finish, I'd just say that, you know, the history books, when one writes these books, one longs to write books that are readable. And in my history books, um, you know, the minutiae of Politburo and, and, and the way power worked in the Soviet Union or Catherine the Great's court, um, I, fi I find it fascinating. I, and I, 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 but I, I do very sort of detailed research. And then I just work and sweat blood to try and make sure that it's, that it's readable for everybody. Um, like, you know, I always think that I want to write the books so that my mother could read it. Um, even though it's about Stalin's um, government, for example. Um, with Sashenka, um, this is a book, as I said, I've given you a sort of glimpse of the way that this book has been put together over my whole lifetime, really. And it's a book that, it's a book that I've, I've loved writing. It's, a, it's literally a labor of love in all sorts of ways. It's a result of many things I've seen. But it's really written in such a way, I hope, and I've worked very hard at this, that it's just, a, like I said, it's just a family story about a Russian-Jewish family, about children, and about five generations across the 20th century. And um, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Got a bit of time. That was great, thank you. Uh, you've actually answered most of the questions I was going to ask you. So as, with, as time is limited, I think I'm going to go straight to questions from the audience, because I'm sure there'll be lots of questions there. So if we can have the lights up, stick your hand in the air, and wait for the microphone. If you can keep your questions quite brief, please. Okay. Now hang, hang on, this one first, sorry. So I just want to ask you whether you consulted also the memory archives, those new archives which have been, um, a new archive which has been put together um, based on letters and diaries of private people. Did you consult those as well? Yeah, you mean the memoriam ones? Yes, yes I did. And of course, I mean the letters of private, letters of private people are frightfully important, especially writing this sort of book. But you know, like I said, I mean, this sort of book, as I said, it, it's based on history, but it's, it's a made-up story. You know, it's, it's, it could be true, but it, it isn't. And it's really, just, it's really just about a fictional people in a real time. Thank you. Okay, lady there, then uh, yes. lady over there. I'm sorry, Simon. You are glamorizing Stalin, and I simply cannot accept it. I didn't have to read Solzhenitsyn's Gulag to find out the horrors about it. I learned it from my father, who has been there. And I find that this kind of presentation is glamorizing. The guy was sick, sick, sick. In a normal world, people like this are sectioned. They're in a lunatic asylum. And there is, there is something to say here about Putin, for instance, and maybe Saakashvili, who still admire people like Stalin and uh, venerate them and keep monuments to them. And I, I think here you are, you are, I'm just <laughs> almost having a heart attack. I'm here. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, it's for a good cause, really. 
you may be doing it uh, from the perspective of a Westerner, but you are doing us all a disservice here. It's a good question. I, and I, I actually, it's a good, it's a good statement. In fact, I agree with, oddly, I agree with a lot of what you said. Have, have you actually read my books on Stalin? Yes. You've read them, yeah. because I think that I think most people who read them um, find them absolutely damning about Stalin as a, as a mass murderer and monster, and that's actually why Putin wouldn't publish the book in Russia. Um, so, I'm sorry if you feel that way, but actually, you know, I think um, I, I actually think that Stalin, historical characters. Um, I don't think it helps just to call them monsters. I think one, one has to analyze how they came to power, how power worked. But otherwise, I can't really find anything to disagree with what you've said. So thank you very much. There's somebody up there. I can see if it's a, oh, it's a man. Sorry, another way. Yeah. If you could uh, ask Stalin one question, what would it be? I guess the, the thing that most, I'd most like to ask him would be that, you know, what happened in 1941? Why he, um, why he so badly and so disastrously uh, misread Hitler's intentions. Um, and and, and you know, that was really one of the biggest disasters of his career. Um, and I just, I mean, the only reason he survived in 1941 was because he'd killed so many people in the Soviet Union that there was no opposition. I mean, in any other system in the world, in any other country, in any other government, a man who made such a disaster of the beginning of, the, you know, of, a, of a war and got it so wrong would be ultimately overthrown and probably murdered by his barons, if you like. But Stalin, that didn't happen with Stalin simply because there was no one left. He'd killed everybody. So everyone was much too terrified to ever resist him. And, um, and so he survived. But I'd love to ask him what he was really thinking at that point. Okay, thank you. Lady Hi. there. And then up the back there, and then you. I hope your book is as colourful as your belted socks. <laughs> <laughs> A very light question. Your little seven-year-old interpreter, when did he get the sack? Uh, well, he, didn't, he never got the sack. I don't know what happened to him in, in, in Grozny. Um, I, 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 never, um, I never saw him again after that. I mean, and actually, in, um, I was actually thrown out of... Grozny by the by pre then President Dudayev, who denounced me as a MI6 agent, and um, and threw me out, uh, very very soon after that incident. And I was only there for about three days. And when I um, and I remember going across, and the Russian tanks, these huge T72 tanks, were all just parked in like a phalanx of dark green along the border. And I remember the Russian soldier saying, you know, show your passport that you're a West, you know, you're a West, and you sold it. And we, we walked across the border holding up, our, holding up our passports and got out. And that was really the last of my adventures um, in that, that sort of that type. And I'm not going back this week. <laughs> I had a date here, after all. <laughs> Gentleman up there, person in red there, and then lady over there. Um, Mr. Putin, is he good for the Russians or is he bad for the Russians? Well, I'd like to ask that lady what she thinks, um, who asked the earlier question. But m m no, Putin. I mean, um, but Putin, um, you know, for most Russians, he's immensely popular. And if you're looking at it from a Russian perspective, um, you know, and, and it's very important to look at the Russian perspective because we get into a hysteria in the West. And actually, we get very confused in many, in many ways when we analyze Russia. I mean, one way is that, you know, when he came, every time a Russian leader comes to power, 
and this goes right from Stalin, by the way, up to, up to um, our own period, we believe that, that we look for desperately for signs that these are liberal, decent, westernized people. I mean, do you remember the stories about Andropov, for example, um, that he came to fact that he loved jazz and Red, Red Agatha Christie? Um, I've seen cuttings in Western newspapers saying that Stalin was at last um, a, a moderate um, after, you know, the extremism of Lenin and so on. When Yeltsin came to power, when, you know, every single ruler, this happened. So it happened with Putin. But, you know, basically, you know, Putin rules for Russia. And Russians love Putin. I mean, he's extremely popular there. Um, but he's an authoritarian. And the Russians have a special, have, have in, in, in this case, a special sort of pact with their rulers and that, you know, they give the rulers these cl small cliques of people get control of Russia and providing they provide prestige, <coughs> security and some prosperity, they're left to do of what they like with the, with the Russian state and that's what's happened with Putin. But Putin has been very successful. I mean, what's happened this week in the last few days, you know, is a tragedy but it's, a, but it's also um, redrawn the world order as we know it. I mean, people will, I think historians will look back and say, you know, 1991, Soviet Union fell, American hegemony across the world, up until sort of about 2008, when, when, you know, when Russia started to draw back, pull back, push back those boundaries again. And um, we've just shown that we're not, Putin has, has managed to manipulate the situation um, in a way so that we, we, we in the West have been cruelly exposed as unable to back our friends and westernized democracies in the new, in the, in the new independent countries of the former Soviet Union. And, um, but from the Russian point of view, you know, they look upon it, very, the Russian government at the moment is very xenophobic, very suspicious, um, uh, very seething with fury about Western hypocrisy in Iraq, in Kosovo. Kosovo is very important in all this, but so is Iraq. Um, they're seething with fury at, at, at us as humbugs, as moral, humbug, as moral um, hypocrites. And um, they want to humiliate America as much as possible. From their point of view, moving um, NATO radars into the Czech Republic, moving, um, having e EU and NATO protecting Ukraine, for example, or Georgia, would be like if Scotland and Wales became independent of England and joined the Warsaw Pact. So, it is important to see it from their point of view. And, um, but I think Putin's been very successful. Okay, just there. And then yes, we'll Simon. Um, I agree with you completely about not suggesting figures like Stalin are just monsters because that doesn't explain anything and it takes away from the fact these were real events in yeah. our world with real people. Um, so I was wondering, as I've noticed on Amazon, an upcoming publication of yours where 101 World Monsters fits into that. <laughs> yeah, um, well, Stalin, Stalin um, stars in that book as a, as a monster, in fact. So, so um, uh, I mean, I think, I, I think that um, I mean, one of the things I've, I've done in the last couple of years is to produce these, this book of heroes and this book of monsters. The point is always just to make history interesting to people um, who, who might not read history. That's why I've written those books. They're, they're colorful um, they're colourful present gift books for you know to make history exciting for a generation of um, uh, of people who don't read history you know who think Churchill is an insurance company <laughs> and um, and so I very much want to explain Stalin Star, what Stalin you know what Stalin was like and that you know that, that he, as I said 
I mean, morally, he was a monster. He killed, you know, more people than you know, more people than virtually any other um, ruler of, of Russia, European ruler in all of history. Um, but uh, but I but I do strongly believe that, you know, analyze, analyzing Hitler or Stalin, just saying they were monsters is kind of meaningless, as you said, and that um, I find that most people with my books on in my 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 biographies of Stalin. Um, when, when I show Stalin, for example, um, doing his daughter's homework, for example, uh, which I mentioned earlier, I show him doing the homework, and then I have him going to a meeting where he signs the, a death list ordering the, the death of 5,000 innocent people. I think most readers are sophisticated enough to realize that, um, that I'm showing a rounded character, but that the killing of 5,000 people after the homework um, uh, is, is what will, will, will draw the reader's judgment and that the reader is sophisticated enough to judge that that is a disgusting thing, this is a disgusting person, and, um, and make their own conclusions. Very last question, very brief, please, and a brief answer, Simon. Okay. In, in studying some of your work, I get the impression that the Jews had a remarkable survival rate in Russia. Am I right in thinking that? Compared to, say, Nazi Germany? Um, well, yes. I mean, they... The Jewish, the Jewish question is a fascinating question um, in Russian history, the Russians and the Jews. I mean, as you, as you probably know, Solzhenitsyn's last book was about the Russians and the Jewish relationship. Um, they survived because there, there wasn't a Holocaust in, um, in, in, in Soviet Russia. Um, so they weren't, being, they weren't being killed in the same, in the same way at all. It was, it was, there was no parallel between the two. So yes, they did survive, but they weren't very well treated, especially in late Stalin period onwards. Um, so, they had, of, um, they had a lot of Jewish friends. Well, a lot of the early Bolsheviks, I mean, this, one of the great sort of um, myths of the, of the Soviet Union is that all the sort of early Bolsheviks were Jews. And um, I've looked at this great closeness and, without, and with unflinching analysis, um, as one has to in these things. And there were a lot of Jews, but actually, that, people always say that because everyone's obsessed with the role of Jews everywhere in history. But the fact of the matter was that there were, you know, there were just as many Caucasians, there were just as many Georgians, Poles, Li Lithuanians, and so on uh, in the, in the, um, in the uh, Soviet leadership. And the reason for that was because the Tsar um, oppressed all the minorities who had no other um, opportunity to reach power, to express themselves. So the early days of the Soviet Union um, was full of these slightly exotic um, uh, nationality, especially Poles, Lithuanians, Jews, and Caucasians, like Stalin. That ended. After about 19, after the 30s, except for Stalin himself, that really ended. And Soviet, um, Soviet patriotism and Russian nationalism fused to create, um, to create the country that won the Great Patriotic War. That is all we've got time for. Before I draw it to a close, can I just say a couple of things? One, I'd like to thank our sponsors for this event, the Whole Thorndon Literary Retreat. Uh, second is Simon is going to be signing copies of his books in the signing tent over there. Can I ask you to stay in, t in your seat until, I've got him, until Elvis has left the building uh, so that I can get in there quickly? Uh, thank you for being such an attentive and responsive audience, but please thank Simon for a terrific session. Thank you very much.